Good morning. Please have a seat. First of all, I want to thank everybody for last week, Resurrection Sunday. It was a big success here. Uh, we had wonderful worship, and, and the trains ran on time, which is sometimes a, a hard thing to do around here uh, when it's highly populated. Thank you for serving in our children's ministry and greeting and, and parking far away and coming on time. We should do that more often. We should try that <laughs> more than once a year. That would be cool. That would be a new tradition. So anyway, um, we didn't need the overflow, but we learned so much. We we're able to do that. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll use that next year. So thank, thank you again. And for not running the Capital 10K, we're going to have pizza under the tree today. So <laughs> a lot of free stuff. Well, not nah, kind of free. Anyway, hold on for one second. Have, um, we're, we're going back to our series on Colossians now. We'll pick up where we were two weeks ago. Any, anyone here ever seen this movie? It's called The Tuxedo. You don't have to raise your hand. It's, you don't, you don't want to tell people about that. You got 22 on Rotten Tomato. I've seen this movie, and it will make you dumber you know, before when you saw it. And I'll tell you about the movie because um, it's a story. Uh, this is a Jackie Chan movie, and, and Jackie Chan is a lowly ta- uh, taxi cab driver, and then somehow he ends up getting a job as a chauffeur for a multimillionaire that turned out to be an international spy. Well, uh, for various reasons, the spy is injured and, and hospitalized, and, and Jackie Chan has to go to his penthouse apartment and, and get some of his uh, gear, and he sees this tuxedo in this glass case, and the curiosity, he couldn't, couldn't take it, and so he puts on the tuxedo. Well, the, it wasn't a normal tuxedo. It was a $2 billion military super suit, and, and you, it it could cause a person to do anything. And by anything, it, you know, he could run faster than a speeding car. He could, he could dance like James Brown, true. And he could fight like, like Jackie Chan. He could fight like Jackie Chan. Anyway, the, the, the point is, he, you know, he, he took off his old clothes, he put on his new clothes, and he was transformed, right? And, and by the way, this movie was inspired by Colossians. That's how it all got started. That is not true. Everything else I've been saying is true. But it, it, serves as, it serves as a great illustration of, you know, takes off his old, clothes himself, new, new suit, right? New identity, new life. That's the story. New suit, new identity, new life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, we're in a, a book called Colossians, and Colossians... Uh, has as its theme, right? The supremacy, the majesty of, of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then what follows right after that is the gospel that he has given us. And those that have trusted in uh, his death also receive his resurrection for the cost of their sin. They are with him. They are in him. And so just as Jesus is unique, his gospel is like no other, not to be compared to any other uh, opportunities for whatever it might be. And so that's what the Colossians book is about. And now we've been, we've been moving from those theological truths to the practical application. And two weeks ago, when we were looking at it, we were looking at uh, the, gr- the graphic picture that Paul was presenting to us was taking off our old self, and he was using clothing as a metaphor, taking off the old self because it is the old identity. Identity is a key word. Identity is um, the old identity leads to 
very bad decisions that we make and, and are reckless to the soul and those people around us in our relationship with God. And so this week, it's going to be focusing on putting on a new identity, right, clothing ourselves in love. That's what we'll talk about. And that new identity is with Christ. Now, when we look at this passage, I want you to be looking for it's not so much about us anymore. It's about our relationship with one another. So when it comes to the application of this new identity, Paul's going to be saying, look, this is how you have a great congregation. This is how you have a peaceful one that's unified in purpose because of this new identity. Your new identity, seeing yourself as God sees you, and seeing the other saints with this new identity. Do you understand? Okay, let's take a look at the passage. Uh, we're going to go through it a few different times, so don't be startled if we go too, through too fast. Verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have any grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here's the summary here. And over all these virtues, put on, put on this new clothing, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So you can see there, we'll look in details in a moment, but you can see there there's a list of five virtues of Christian behavior, right? And then it's summarized in this encapsulation of the greatest of these is love and manifested in love that binds in perfect unity. What I want you to see before we get to the details that this is not, Paul's presenting this to us, is not a to-do list. He's not coming and saying to you, okay, you need to get to work on this. That is not the way the New Testament speaks about Christian behavior. What he's going to say and emphasize still again is this is an overflow of belief and conviction, things we've been praying for, the full knowledge of what God has done for us in, in this gospel. This is, this is overflow of a conviction of, of who we are in Jesus Christ. So to say it again, you change your identity, you'll change your conduct, you'll change your life. You change, you clothe yourself with, with Christ, with Christ is our identity. You clothe yourself with that, you get a new identity, you get a whole new way of living. That's what Paul's saying still again for, I think, the third time now. And I want, I want the, the point is, I want the, he wants us to see ourselves and he wants us to see others with this new identity. Here's a simple outline so that you understand where we're going. We're going to start with the question, why? Why are we even able to experience this new life? Why can we do that? Because we can't just do the list. So how is that able to happen? And then what uh, does the new life look like? So we'll look and apply part one to part two in, in some of these attributes. What is it, how does it really show itself? How do I think differently? And then finally, how do we get to this new life? Paul's going to answer all three of those questions for us in the passages that we have uh, together. First question, okay, why are we able to experience this? Now, the reason we're able to have these five virtues is uh, because it's, in, it's towards the end of the gospel, right? Or I'm sorry, the epistle of Colossians. And you have to go back to the beginning, chapters one and chapters two. Chapters one, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, right? There's no other, he is, he's, he's different in kind, not in degree. And he presents to us a gospel that is different in kind, not in degree. And that is that, that, that he is God himself and he has given us his identity. We are what's called with him. We are in him. That's the new identity. And so that's one and two. And then chapter three, we looked at 
in chapters 3, verses 1 through 4, this is, these are the hinge verses. If you want to memorize four verses in Colossians, those would be a great place to start because those are the verses that say, okay, we're going to take the theology of 1 and 2 and we're going to summarize it so we can start applying it to our everyday life. That happens in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And this is the summary of who we are in Christ. This is what it means to be with him. Look what it says. We died with him. We're raised with him. We're hidden with him. He is our life, and we will be glorified with him. That's who we are. That's the fact. That fact is our new identity. We're going to say that again together out loud. This is what you need to understand in the fullness of the knowledge so that it will change your life. All right, let's do this together. We have raised with him, hidden with him. He is our life, glory with him. We're with him. That's our identity. That's a fact. That identity, the, the idea of identity, this, this new us, this, this is repeated throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, but especially when Paul writes because he understands that you are, here's what he's saying, you need, um, because of who you are, you need to do that. You are this way, now be this way. This is the way God sees you. Doesn't matter how you see yourself. This is how you're supposed to live, this change of identity. This is supposed to be the center of your soul. This with Christ or in Christ, it is supposed to be at the very heart of our soul. That's what makes it work. Now, I'll just show you, I'm going to prove to you that, that this is the, the spring or the well that gushes out these five Christian virtues. He doesn't talk about clothing yourself with compassion in chapter 3, verse 12, until he first says, therefore, we'll look at that in a minute, therefore, you're chosen by God, you're holy, and you're most loved by God. Those things God already has said to be true. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved by God. Clothe yourself in those things. That's true. Now go out and look at others that way. Look at yourself that way. Look at other people as chosen, holy, and beloved. Look at yourself as chosen, holy, and beloved. And that is going to change the way you do life. But does it? This idea of being with Christ, if, if, it's, if it's our identity, how come so many men and women who are with Christ don't live like they're with Christ? Right? I mean, how, there's so many different ways you can wreck and ruin a life, and we seem to find as many as we possibly can. Here's why. Here's why it doesn't work. Because many of us look at our, our identity, the way we define ourselves, in a myriad of ways. It's like this, right? There's, we just ran it. We picked six, right? So there's, there's your politics and your race, your occupation, family, gender, and there's the with Christ part, right? So it's, it's in there. And when we, when we look at that, that's the problem. That's not how we live our life. There was, uh, I, found, I stumbled across this uh, research paper that... Uh, a professor of missions did years ago, I think in the early 90s, late 80s, and it helps us understand why just knowing that you're with Christ doesn't make the difference that it needs to. Here's what he said. His name is uh, Paul Hebert, and he said that these values that were up there, they're not all created equal. There's weighted averages. 
There's some that are extremely valuable to you. There are some that are very valuable. Some are fairly valuable. Some are like, eh, but it's still part of who I am, but it doesn't matter that much. Here's a quote. Let me summarize his thoughts. Our identity is a set of layers of, of very many things that are influential to us, but, but some layers are more in control of our self-concept and our behavior and more profound than others. Those are the ones that are defining our identity. Those are the ones that are closest to our soul. So in the metaphor that we're using, this idea of putting on clothing, the, f- the thing that you put on first that's closest to your soul, the one that touches your soul, that's the one that your identity is wrapped around. That's the one that has the most power to influence your choices. So let me just show you how people can be with Christ and still have a disastrous life. Here's a good example, right? Here's one. See how the, that's the same quadrants that we had, the six quadrants we had before, but so this person, their career is what's first and foremost. That's their identity. This person will win or lose based on they, whether they excel, whether they get a promotion. You know how you ruin this person's life? Fire them suddenly because that's who they are. And again, he's, he's, he's fine because um, he's a lawyer and he likes that title and he's doing well and things are going well. And so, you know, his political politics is in there, but look how far away it is from his soul. He doesn't care that his party didn't get in. He wrote some checks, but it doesn't make that big a difference. And if you look more carefully, you'll see that his wife doesn't like him and his kids don't know him, but that's okay because he made partner this year. And then maybe get a new house and then everybody will maybe finally be grateful. See, because his identity, why is, why is he making choices? You know, why, why isn't he acting out a Christian value system? It's because with Christ isn't close enough to his soul. This man is clothed in his occupation. This makes sense out of, if you, if you know people, or certainly historically, you know uh, men and women that attend church regularly every week, right? But they have racial prejudice. And that's because at the center of their soul, the center of their identity, and this is probably how it works too, it's their race, and then their family, and then usually politics, and everything else is peripheral. Oh, they're with Christ, and they're reading their Bible, and maybe even in leadership in some churches, but that's not their identity. And so why don't they make choices that Jesus would have them make? Because this person is clothed in race. Now, this idea of layers is profoundly helpful for me because I've been trying to make sense out of this for decades, but this was clear. Look at this next uh, slide, and and I'll tell you the story that goes with this, okay? Uh, When I was in my mid to late 30s, I was going through, uh, I mean, a bunch of guys that I went through college and and seminary with, we were all all the same age by definition. And in the mid to late 30s, which is a very uh, difficult time for people, it can it's called early uh, midlife, and there's a restlessness in the soul, and people can make some bad decisions at that time. And, and these guys that I went through school with, they were, they were godly men. Two of them were pastors. Another guy was in banking, and they loved their wife, and they loved their kids, and they loved Jesus. And within a matter of months, all three of them, their wives left them. And 
what was interesting was it, was, it was startling to all of us, but if you rewound the tape, the three ladies all had the same story. They were all raised in exceptionally wealthy homes. And I mean, one was even a debutante, if you know what that is. And, and when they went to school, when they went to college, they found out about Jesus. They were with Jesus, right? That was part of their identity. And because that was such an important part of their identity, they knew they had to marry a godly man, someone that would, would love God more than anything else. And so they did, all three of them. What happened was somewhere around the early 30s, there was a tremor and then a panic, right? They're chained of, by fear of not becoming who they thought they would become. And somewhere around 36 to 38, they figured out that this man, he loves God, but he's not going to get me to the right zip code or into the right country club. So they left their husbands. Why? Why weren't they making decisions with Christ? Because their identity was not with Christ. It wasn't close enough to their soul. Their identity was with family of origin income. That's how it happened. And, and you can see why I, I mean, it's like a, a Christian version of an old Eagles song, right? My, oh, my, you sure know how to arrange things. You set, you know, you set things up so well, so carefully. But uh, ain't it funny how your new life didn't change things? You're still the same old girl you used to be. Funny how your new life with this godly husband didn't change things. You're still the same old girl you used to be. Same old values, same old identity, same old idol that you're worshiping. You see? You see how it's how the Christianity, the uh, Christian maturity is the process of fundamentally moving the centrality of Jesus Christ, that we are with Christ into the center of our soul. It needs to be the thing that touches. It's the first layer of clothing that we put on. Clothe yourself in this. This is the thing that touches our soul. When that happens, when that happens in a life, it transforms everything. It is absolutely revolutionary. Now you have peace. Now you have strength. It's, it's, <laughs> you're, you're fearless. It's a great place to be. The, the power of this is such that the church can now be unified in purpose. Look what he says in uh, verse 11. Assuming this to be true, right? Verse 11, that precedes what we were looking at. He says, now, now here, like in this centrality of Jesus, right? With, with him in the middle. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian or Scythian, no slave or free. Income levels don't matter. Race doesn't matter. Reli you know, religious heritage doesn't matter. Why? Why could there, make, why could there be such freedom? Here's why. Because, because, but Christ is all and is in all. When Christ is all and is in all, right, then all these other things get pushed out. This is the single most inclusive statement in the New Testament. And what Paul is saying here, and it's, it's honestly this Christ is all and in all, is the summary of Colossians. It's the summary of the application of the gospel in our lives. Because if, when Christ gets into the middle with Christ and over the years expands out and gets bigger and bigger, then guess what? 
racial differences, income differences, backgrounds, all those sorts of things, they don't cause arguments. They cause fun, right? Viva la difference. We have so much in common with Christ. That's the power of this new identity. And if we see ourselves with that new identity and we see other people with that new identity, friends, we're going to have a good time. We're going to enjoy the fullness of what God has for us. So here's, here's the goal of Christian maturity. When you become a new believer, with Christ is usually put somewhere on the outside because mostly we don't even know what drives us. Most people, especially early in their Christian life, do not know the internal motivation that causes us to act out. We haven't put, we, we inherit a lot of these things without thinking, and now in, with Christ is in there. And, and, and now we're supposed to move it down towards the center. It takes time. It takes a lot of practice and failure. And usually the way we learn to move it down is, one, whatever's in the center is not working. It, it's, it's destroying us. And then, two, as we walk with God, we get these glimpses, these moments of Christ with Christ being in the center of our soul. And we go, oh, I like that. You are never happier than when you're holy. And you say, I want more of that. Well, that's going to take some more doing. You're going to have to have more insight and understanding, and you're going to have to push that with Christ down further. I gotta, I'll, I'll tell you this, though. As you get closer to the center, it gets more difficult because those can be idols down there. And sometimes... Sometimes something has to happen to you that's not pleasant. You have to have something like rattle you like a big loss or an illness or something to show you that this idol will kill you. And on a positive side, you get a, a larger breath of the glory of the majesty of God. And you say... That is something I could be addicted to that would make me more, not less. And you say, I want to do that. And it brings peace and freedom into your life like you never have. And so you push down further. And when you get with Christ in the center of your soul, you're done. No, you've got to keep it there. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I'm just... I don't know, the calendar turns and something else happens and you've got to fight to keep it there. You have to, that's just, I'm telling you the truth. And, but in that place, that's where you become who you are. That's what Paul's saying. You don't have to do these things to become. You are this. Now you just become it. Practice it, okay? Time and failures and practice and awareness. Now, let, me, let me show you... Uh, how, how, how this works in this passage. Now let's go look at the passage. Now that you know the idea of identity and you know it's in layers and we're trying to work our way into this, this is what Paul wants you to see yourself and see others to be according to this passage, 3.12. Okay, look what he says. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. Look at that. That is such a loaded, that's not even the whole sentence, right? Therefore, Therefore, what does therefore mean? You always look before therefore, and it said, verse 11, remember, Christ is all and Christ is in all. That's, that's where you, if Christ is all and Christ is in all. <laughs> and then next, 
You're God's chosen people. You are. I am. We're supposed to look at each other this way. God goes through the, the shelter of homeless animals, and there's us, a bunch of mutts in these cages. And he goes by, and he looks at you, and he doesn't pick you because of how you look or don't look. Good thing. How smart you are or not smart you are. Good thing. You bring nothing to the relationship, but maybe some mange and some fleas. Sin, I'm going to call that sin. And he chooses you. You know why? Because he does whatever he wants to do. And he chooses you. And Paul's saying here, could you stop and bask in that identity for just a second? You chosen by God. And then he says, you're holy. You know what holy means? Yeah, you do. And he's calling you holy, pure, spotless, blameless, because that's how God sees you with Jesus. And then last, it says, dearly loved. What an affectionate term that is, right? Dearly loved by God. Beloved, some say. Clothe yourself in that. <laughs> Clothe yourself in that. Chosen, right? holy, dearly loved by God. I'm, I'm putting that on, right? That's a suit I want to wear. And I want to see, and I, my, my point of view is, I want to see you in that. I want to see you looking that way, right? That's how I have to vision you. That's how God sees you. Listen, when you put on that clothing, you're rock solid steady. You can't be rattled by good or bad. Here's what John Newton, the famous uh, hymn writer, says. The worst times are tolerable and the best times are leavable. The worst times are tolerable. The best times are leavable. That means there's not, you can't have something happen to you with Christ that can undo you because it's not your identity. And you can't have something good happen to you that will undo you because it's not your identity. You had a wreck man's life? Okay. Failure or success? Success ruins more people than failure ever did. And he's saying failure or uh, success won't ruin you if you're with Christ. So, all that was to prove to you that this to-do list of Christian virtues is not a to-do list. It is a spring that overflows and happens as we gain our understanding and conviction of what God has already done in the majesty of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he's given us. And we see ourselves that way, and we see other people that way. Knowing that, now let's look at 12 through 14 and see how to apply it, right? Therefore, 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 right? As God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. I can't do that. Oh, wait. Yes, I can because I'm with Christ. Bear with each other and forgive each other, one another if you have any grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, so the last, the last of the five virtues there is patience and bear one another and forgive are aspects of patience. You're being patient. You're losing your patience. Just bear with it, would you? Okay. It's not sin we're talking about. Just bear with it. And then, and then forgive one another. But I I'm going to use this as a case study. Why do we forgive? How do we forgive? It says here, because he forgave us. And what happens when he forgives us? He makes us with him. 
Okay, see, here's the thing. When we, when we say we're with him or in him, there's another way. We're like him. He forgives us. He makes us like him. That makes us forgivers. Do you see? He, he, is, he is a forgiving king, making us forgiving princesses and princes. And, 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 and this is a majestic royal thing to forgive. And everybody knows that. We have figures of speech. To err is human, right? To forgive is divine. And Paul's saying, yeah, you got some of that in you. Forgive is divine. Be royalty. Act like royalty. Look at your brothers and sisters as royal family members and forgive them. There is nothing quite as powerful as mercy. There's nothing quite as life-changing as forgiveness. We know this intrinsically and intuitively. One of Shakespeare's famous uh, um, soliloquies is from The Merchant of Venice, where the antagonist is going to crush this Protagonist, because he owes him some money and there's no way he's going to repay him, and he's going to crush him with justice. He can have him killed, imprisoned, and even killed because he won't pay his debt. And the antagonist has someone come in and makes an appeal for something more powerful than justice. You might know these lines, right? The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Mercy is twice blessed. It, is, it blesses him who gives and him who takes. It is mightiest of the mightiest. It, it becomes for the throned monarch better than even his crown. His scepter shows the force of his temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty. And where the scepter sits... There sits the dread and the fear of the kings. But mercy, but mercy is above the scepter's sway. Mercy is enthroned in the heart of kings. It's an attribute of God himself. And earthly power does then show the likeness of God when mercy seasons justice. When mercy seasons justice, you're acting like God himself, and you are. You are in the image of Jesus Christ, and you know what he does quite well? He forgives. He is very good at that, and that's who you are, so be that way. So why do you forgive? Because he commands? Sure. Because it's true? Yeah. Because it's effective? Uh Uh-huh. What is he saying here? We forgive because we are overflowing with the identity of the forgiving Savior. So, you are that way, act that way. That's, what he, that's how it works. See how it works? See how it's working from the inside out? See how the identity, if it gets to the center of our soul, if it's touching the skin of our soul, it can have this power? Okay, well, how do we, how do we move? <laughs> I don't know how I worded this. How do I get that with Christ down into the center, right? That's what we want to know. Because if that's the answer, how do I get there? How do I act different? I believe different. Okay, thanks. How do I believe different? Paul's going to give us four, uh, what are they called, imperatives. Okay, these are orders. Four imperatives of how to move with Christ into the center of your soul in this last paragraph we look together. Before we read, I want you to understand this. The whole mood of this paragraph is gratitude. He's going to say thankful twice and grateful once. 
It is the nature of a healthy soul to be grateful. If, you're, if your heart isn't thankful or grateful, you need to start there. That's actually point two, I think, but let's, you would start there. So here are, the, here are the four imperatives to move this down into your heart and have a life change. Okay, first one is to let Christ rule, the peace of Christ rule. 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace. The word rule there is where we get the word umpire. That's a great word. Isn't that picturesque? So when it comes to your interaction at home with your Christian family, at here when you're brothers and sisters, are you more like those guys on the hockey rink that are fighting, or are you more like the umpire that comes in and breaks them up? He's saying, be the umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the ruler of your life. Oh, here's, here, this will work, right? Um, the Prince of Peace. There's a nickname for Jesus. Let the Prince of Peace rule in your decisions. Boom. The second thing he says is be thankful and be thankful. This was not tagged along. It's got its own sentence because it's such an important aspect of our Christian life. If you, the, the word be, actually, the way it's written in Greek, it could mean become. And one translation says learn to become thankful. Because nothing will get with Christ to the center of your soul faster than gratitude towards God and his people. Practice being grateful. Get good at being thankful. It moves it towards the middle. The next thing he says is let the message of Christ dwell richly in you. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, with psalms and hymns and songs uh, from the Spirit of God, singing to God with, there it is again, with gratitude in your heart. Here's a, here's a diagnostic question, simple question. Answer this, this will help. Have you read your Bible this week? About seven times. Have you read it seven times? Because He's saying the message of Christ must, must richly dwell within us. And friends, we can't starve our souls from the truth about who God is and the things he's promised. You can't, you can't live a week without that. If this is your diet, you're starving. I, I bet you ate 20 meals this week, but you didn't miss a day without, a, without food. I bet you probably didn't miss a day without brushing your teeth at least once. Probably showered occasionally. Well, good for you. You're taking care of your body. Take care of your soul. Some of the wisest, I guess, proverb truth that a professor ever told me was this. You are a product of what you read and who you spend time with. Haven't found that to be anything but true. What you read what you meditate on, right, richly dwell, the message that richly dwells in your soul, what you read is getting to your identity. Read that book. Read that book. Saints are people that are afraid to get too far from a passage. Be that. The last thing he says to do is... uh, is do all things. The, the imperative there is do. So verse, verse 17, and whatever you do, whether it's word or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God. Here it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
do everything in word or in deed. Friends, we're going we're gonna to finish uh, crawling, bloody knees and palms. Okay, until we see Jesus, until they put us six feet in the ground, we're going to be mostly failing. Augustine said, the greatest saint is a vile thing. The Christian life is getting up. Like it says in Proverbs, a righteous man is knocked down and he gets up. He gets back up. If God played a sport, he'd play baseball. Because in baseball, if you swing and miss 70% of the time, you're still going to make the all-stars. And you might even make it to the Hall of Fame. 30% victories are winners in baseball. And I have found that's not too bad in following Christ either. So I, I don't mean to make this sound like it's an impossible task. It's, it is an impossible task. The point is, get up, let's go, let's do it again. Here's what we need to do. Remember two weeks ago, I hope you were here, but I'm going to apply it again. Spiritual breathing was one of the first disciplines that I learned when I, was walking, when I just became a Christian. And, and it was taught by this guy that was taking this passage, this, this, uh, this uh, illustration of, of taking this stuff off and putting good stuff on, right? Taking the old nature off, putting the new nature on, old identity, new identity. He said, look, it's like breathing, friend. It's getting out the, old, the bad stuff and putting in the new stuff. Two weeks ago, we looked at how transformative that can be with just our sin life. This week, I want us to see how spiritual breathing can be applied to the way we think. We're talking about brainwashing here. We're talking about mind cleansing and so when you have these thoughts where you're looking at other people in the faith and you want to treat them in a way that's hostile, that's not peaceful or compassionate, you stop yourself. You, you right? I mean, uh, you, you stop that moment and, and take that thought captive. That, take that thought captive. Sit it down and say, where did that come from? That's my sister. That's my brother. That's royalty. They are chosen. They are holy, right? They are beloved by God. When you find yourself too concerned about failure or success and you're seeing that you have lost your stability, you take that thought captive and you ask, what, what changed? What has changed? Because I'm chosen and I'm holy and I'm beloved by God. And when you take the thought captive, you do this. You say, what is causing a mutiny on the bridge of my soul that wants to take over that center place? Because something in there, something in there wants to get out and ruin my life. And there's so many ways to ruin your life when Christ is not where he ought to be in the center of your soul. That's, so so it's, 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 it's brainwashing. It's, it's mind cleansing. It's like, how could I think that thought? And then inhale, I died with him. I raised with him. I am hidden in with him. He is my life and I will be in glory with him. Get on that throne there. That's how it works. What was Hamlet in cartoons? Remember that? Lion King? Remember when the ghosts came? Mufasa? And he came and he talked to Simba because Simba was laying around enjoying the jungle. And he was the king. And there was work to be done. You want to rattle that young man's cage? Remember, Mufasa came and what did he say? In his, in his, as a ghost. He said, Simba, you are more than what you've become. 
Can you hear God saying that to you? You are more than what you've become. You are with him. So, let's suit up. Hmm? Lord Jesus, um, I I pray that prayer again. I pray, Lord, that um, your full knowledge of who you are and what you've done might give us an understanding of, from your spirit of what your will is for our life so we might be just full of great deeds and actions and that your majesty would be the thing that gives us the power to be peaceful with one another and endure hardship with one another. Lord, I'd ask that you would help give us insight about what is our identity and what needs to be thrown out. Lord, if there's some idols to slay, I'd ask that you bring a sharp knife and you do your work. We offer our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.